Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedekes, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is another very special one, as they all are, but this one's especially special. I say that every time, but they all are. Uh, I have with me Dr. Daniel J. Hill. We're going to be talking about uh, his co-authored book, Does God Intend That Sin Occur? Uh, it's, it's really fascinating. And before you guys get out the, the heresy stamps or anything like that, just, you know, bear with us here. It's, 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 it's philosophically, uh, you know, astute. It's, uh, biblically informed. We're going to get into the details for you. So, uh, just put the rocks down for a second and listen. It'd be great. Um, Dr. Hill is a senior lecturer at the university of Liverpool. Uh, did his PhD under Paul Helm. I'm, I'm excited to jump in on this. Uh, so stick around and you guys will be experts in the conversation on whether or not God intends that sin occur. Uh, before we dive into the conversation, though, I want to thank everyone who's making this podcast happen over on Patreon. If you guys like this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. I, I say this every time, so I'm sure that like it just, you know, you're you're glazed over right now. But if you guys like it, you guys want to see me keep doing this stuff. I, I need more patrons. Please consider becoming a Patreon patron. I always feel like uh, the WTTW or something like that. Like It's brought to you by viewers like you. It, it actually is. So that would be hugely helpful. Uh, you can also buy some merch from my merch store. Uh, you can find the link in the description. Or if you're on YouTube, you can find it just below this video. Uh, super chats, super thanks, all those good things. There's lots of ways to support the podcast. Uh, so please consider doing that. All right. Well, without further ado, let's get right into the conversation with Dr. Daniel J. Hill. Daniel, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's, uh, I've been an admirer of your show for a long time. You do tremendous work um, with some wonderful guests. And it's a great privilege for me to be uh, a part of the series. And I also ought to say before anything else um, that uh, the book that you've kindly asked me on to talk about today uh, is uh, co-authored. It's with um, um, my former doctoral student, um, Matthew J. Hart. And, uh, um, you know, Matt certainly deserves at least equal, probably more than half the credit for anything good in here. But I take responsibility for all, for all the errors. <laughs> That's great. Um, I, I wanted to say a word about this Tyndale Fellowship, uh, that it, you, you are the, oh shoot, uh, you're the chair of the study I'm the group. I'm the chair of the uh, study group in philosophy of religion of the Tyndale Fellowship. That's right. Yeah. And and your um, co-chair is uh, Dr. Co Paul Copan. And we spent uh, a lot of time trying to figure out how, was, how to say his name before this. I, I'm pretty sure it's Copan, but I think that's his American way of saying it. So um, can, can you tell us a, a word? Can you tell the audience a word or two about this, uh, this fellowship? I'd be delighted. It's a very important part of my life. It's a uh, uh, something I regard as an important ministry. The Tyndale Fellowship um, is an evangelical study organization in Britain. Originally, it was um, part of the um, InterVarsity Fellowship, as it used to be called, University College Christian Fellowship. And I know you have that in the States. Um, now it's independent of, of the, that student movement. The fellowship has got six study groups in Old Testament, New Testament, biblical theology, biblical archaeology, Christian doctrine, and philosophy of religion. And each group has got a chair and a co-chair. I'm the chair of the philosophy of religion study group, study group in philosophy of religion, and Paul is the co-chair. Hmm. Um, it's unique in Britain in that it's the only evangelical 
philosophy as society in Britain. Um, it's, I know in the States you have uh, a wonderful and much, much bigger group called the Evangelical Philosophical Society and, uh, and that there's absolutely tremendous work and we're very much in awe of them over here in Britain. Um, but the uh, Tyndale Fellowship is the nearest that we've got. It's much, much smaller than EPS um, and uh, we don't have a, a, our own journal in philosophy or anything like that. Uh, but we do have a conference every year and uh, your listeners and uh, uh, watchers would be very welcome um, to come to that. Um, I can give you the uh, uh, web address if you would like for them to, um, uh, you know, find out more about it and to yeah. uh, sign up for the conference and things like that. Yeah, that'd be um, awesome. I'll put that link in, yeah. in the description here. Yeah. Great. Okay. The um, it's just a all we do in the in the conference is we have um, a. Uh, set of papers and uh, anybody uh, can uh, give a paper um, um, and we discuss them in the normal kind of way of a philosophy conference. It's all done in the name of Jesus Christ, but anybody can come along. It's not kind of restricted to Christians or evangelical Christians. We do have a keynote lecture every year, which is restricted to evangelical Christians. Mm. And, um, we, and I think you know the person that's down to be our keynote lecturer next year, who's called Paul Gould. Oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so wow. we're very much looking forward to welcoming Paul Gould um, to be our keynote lecturer in 2023. And in fact, Paul Copen is down to be our uh, keynote lecturer, the Tyndale Fellowship lecturer in 2024. Wow. So, um, okay. we're very excited about that. Yeah, that's huge. I'll have to check that out. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to uh, I'm, I'm torn because I want to I want to give this uh, information out there, but I also don't want uh, competition for my uh, paper submission. So <laughs> no, just kidding. I'll put it out there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, well, awesome. Uh, Daniel, let's, let's jump in, uh, to some of the details of the book. Uh, does God intend that sin occur? Uh, another link I'll put in the description is the link to the book because it's open access. So people can it's just go access, and download this right. book. That's fantastic. Uh, and again, it's, it's with, it's co-edited with Matthew J. Hart and Daniel J. Hill. Uh, something about the J's there, uh, you know, you, you guys should have, that, that's good. That's the, the, uh, the fact. Well, there. there is actually, there's some, uh, an American, uh, evangelical Christian called Daniel Hill. Um, mm. And so I, I put the J in, in my name because he might be cross if uh, uh, my stuff gets <laughs> attributed to him. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't mind. I'd be flattered if people attributed his stuff to me. But uh, I don't know whether he would um, reciprocate the, uh, the sentiment. So I put the, the J in to distinguish myself from him and, and anybody else called Daniel Hill. Um, That's really good. Well, and, and that might be important because <clears throat> like, like we've talked about off air that this topic uh, riles people up. Does God intend that sin occur? Um, I, I wanted to start by defining some terms. So maybe we, maybe we might just say a, a word about like what what do we mean by sin? That's a great question. Thank you, Parker. So we mean by uh, sin. We mean we're talking about sinful actions. We could have called the book "Does God Intend That Sins Occur." That might 
possibly been a better title in some ways. Um, but um, we're talking about the sinful actions, the sinful things that people do. Mm. Um, we're not meaning anything um, particularly heavy duty by it, for instance. Sometimes you hear people say that a sin has to be directed against God himself, so that it's not a sin if it's just directed against your neighbor. But we don't go in for any of that. A sin is just any morally wrong um, uh, action that anybody does that that's all that that we yeah. mean by it with no kind of there's no hidden heavy duty theory or anything like that behind this that's good yeah just so would that i mean does that also include mental acts to mental actions yes. yeah okay. thank you for that yes it includes um, mental sins sins of omission as well as sins of commission and of course uh you know, more kind of straightforward physical sins of commission too absolutely and you know okay. in theory it would although we talk mostly about individuals in the book it could in theory include uh sins of uh nations and organizations and things oh, like that as okay well. so yeah i really like that that you guys are doing that with this like this uh broad you know swath take on sin because so often uh, it's a temptation, but it's also like a skill in philosophy to say, like, here's what I, here's just what I mean. It's this, and then it's like, well, what about all these other things that we typically take to be sins? And you're like, well, you someone else deal with those, but this is like, no, this is just sin. What you take to be sin, it's it's pretty straightforward. Uh, these are all the sins that we're talking about. Uh, so I I appreciated that in the book. Um, so does God intend that sin occur? We got sin, uh, sins. What about um, intend? Like what what? Can you help us out with in, intention and then like the, the difference between um, intending and, and having foresight of something? Sure. Thank you. So um, it's a similar story, really, Parker, just as um, there are many philosophical debates about the nature of sin. So there are many philosophical debates about the nature of intention. And we don't get into any of them. We are using the word intending what we think is the normal common or garden pre-theoretical sense of the word um you know people say things like you know i intend to go to the dentist uh today or maybe they say i intend not to go to the dentist today um yeah. but um, and this is a normal kind of english word uh that's uh, used a lot and people don't seem to have any difficulty in grasping what it's meant if we take it that intentions are a mental state uh though that's not actually essential for um what we have to say a lot of the older um, the word is relatively recent in the past few hundred years, um, uh, popular usage. A lot of the older texts, and we do talk about some of the older texts in the book, uh, for the word will. So you'll find, for example, that um, if you go back 400 years, they're talking not about whether God intends that sin occur, but whether God wills that sin occur. And we don't make any difference between uh, those two. We would say that uh, intention is not the same as desire. So we say in normal English, people say things like, I intend to go to the dentist today, but they don't tend to say things like, I desire to go to the dentist today. And they might sometimes say, but usually speaking, if you desire something, it's because you find it in some way attractive and, and, and good. And we're not saying that about God and sin at all. Um, mm. But in normal English, we intend maybe very reluctantly to um, uh, bring about things that we'd rather not like going to the dentist um, and things that we wouldn't normally be said to desire so we're not saying that god desires that sin occur we're saying only that god intends that sin occur and um, by the way it's um we're quite careful in the book to say um god intends 
that sin occur using a, a yeah. that clause rather than something like God intends to sin, which we absolutely reject. So we, we right. definitely don't say that God intends to sin. In fact, we say it's impossible for God to intend to sin. So we see there's a huge difference between intending to do something and intending that something occur. And we're yep. talking only about the second of those. We're talking about God's intending that sin on the part of other people, that is, should occur. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that was such a helpful clarification uh, when I was reading that and, and as you just recounted. Um, so know about four times as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, I was just going to bring that up. That yeah. part. The, um, uh, we think, I think this is common sense, most people that aren't trained philosophers and don't have an axe to grind here would say that there is a difference between intending and merely foreseeing. So, for example, um, when I uh, drive my car, I um, foresee that I'm going to use up petrol, that I'm going to, or gas, as you call it in the United States, that I'm going to yeah. wear down the tires or tires with an I, as you call them in the United States. We spell it with a Y over here. I foresee all that, but I don't intend to wear down the tires. I mean, that would be a very kind of strange thing to in, intend to do. Maybe, you know, sometimes people do, but it's very, very rare. I don't intend to use up the fuel. Similarly, even in, in walking, you know, I foresee that I'm going to wear down, you know, my shoe leather, but I don't intend <laughs> to wear down the, the shoe leather. Um, those are, I think, common sense type examples. There are more controversial examples that may well be familiar to your <coughs> listeners and viewers. For example, um, in military ethics, uh, people will often say things like um, that a, a bomber pilot might foresee but not intend civilian casualties. Yeah. And in fact, that's not confined to the field of military ethics. And when the government builds a new um, motorway or freeway or highway, uh, they, when they're planning it, they foresee, sadly, there'll be a certain number of fatalities, but they don't, don't intend those fatalities when they are building um, the new motorway and freeway highway. So it does seem to us there's, there's, there's common sense uh, distinction between intending that something happen and merely foreseeing that that thing will happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I take it that, um, yeah, that a lot of, a lot of Christians will say, yeah, God foresaw that it would happen, but he didn't intend that it would happen. And then there's even this distinction again, that we already talked about between, uh, between desiring and wanting and intending, and then there's foresight. So like, there's a lot of different options that people can yes. take here. That you, right. you got maybe foresaw it, but of course he didn't intend it, and of course he didn't desire it. But then uh, the the um, the thesis of of your your co co authored book is that no, he he yeah he foresaw, but he intended, but he didn't desire uh, you know and, and want. It's perhaps he didn't want uh, that. I, I believe you guys say like that's a different that's a different topic. We're not going to touch whether he wants or desires, though you do admit and and like staunchly say like God can't sin, so God is not a sinner or anything like that yeah. right so we don't say that god desires that sin occur all we say is that god intends that sin occur and of course <laughs> we also say that god foreknew that sin occur now god foreknew that sin would occur is kind of fairly uncontroversial in the history of the church because most people in the history of church have affirmed that god's got um total foresight um, so yeah. he knows everything that's going to happen before it happens. Now, some people have denied that more recently, the so-called open theists. Right. And there, there are a few 
if you go back in the history of the church as well, but it's a very much a minority view, historically speaking. Um, and um, uh, um, we, of course, are affirming uh, not just contrary to the open theists, that God foresees that um, sin will occur, because that's a relatively uncontroversial view. We're affirming the much more controversial view in which the church tradition has been split, that God intends that sin will occur. Not just has church tradition been split, but we are quite open in the book about conceding that we're probably, numerically speaking, the minority side of that yeah. tradition. Yeah, I, so I caught that when I was reading, and I was like, oh, no, because everything you guys were saying was like, yeah, I agree with this, I agree with this, and then, oh, it's a minority, oh, no, I'm in, I'm in that, That's, which is okay, you know. But um, uh, there's this, I, I have to touch on this, and we don't have to spend a whole bunch of time, but um, I, I loved the shoe analogy. It, it made me feel bad for my shoes. My, my dad bought me these really nice shoes, and I'm like, dang it, they're, they're going to wear down, but I'm not intending that. So that was, that was fascinating. But this, um, this idea of intending to arrest Mr. Hyde and yeah. also, you know, that, that intention then like, I don't know if it, if it transfers or it's transitive or something to arresting Dr. Jekyll, even though you don't know, can, can you help us think through that and how like that intention works? Yes. Well, this shouldn't make a difference actually to the final thesis of the book, um, right. but we do discuss this for the sake of completeness. And this is why we talk about intending that um, yeah. sin occur. Uh, because we think that the use of the that clause brings maximal specificity. Um, that is to say, we think that to pick up on the example of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, though the same example would work with kind of Superman and Clark yeah. Kent, um, uh, the, we think that it's possible to intend that Dr. Hyde, uh, that Mr. Hyde be arrested without intending that Dr. Jekyll be arrested even though you can't arrest the one without arresting the other because they're the same person. Or to right. put it in um, DC Comics terms, you, you, we think it's possible to intend that, um, let's say, that Clark Kent be sacked from his job as a reporter without intending that Superman be sacked, even though since Clark Kent is Superman, if you sack the one, you sack the other. Now, yeah. the tricky thing is, is that true not only of intend the blah, 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 but is it true when you intend to do something? So without the mm. bit in. And oh, yeah. now when we say this shouldn't matter for the thesis as a whole, but we say that um, the when you bring the that clause in, it creates um, what philosophers call an opaque context into which yeah. um, you can't substitute um, uh, co-referring terms like Superman and Clark Kent or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, because you've created this new kind of sentential or propositional context that is an entire unit and you can't um, change things in that unit, even with co-referring terms. But by yeah. contrast, we say, and again, it doesn't matter particularly if your audience doesn't agree with this, but we say that intend to, as a verb, doesn't have that feature. So if you intend to arrest Mr. Hyde, you also intend to arrest Dr. Jekyll. And if you intend to sack Clark Kent, you also intend to sack Superman, because that's just the way that the language works. Um, yeah. Now, actually, if you didn't agree with that, that would make our job easier. Um, um, because we've deliberately, um, you know, you may have heard this phrase to steal man, the um, 
opposing thesis and um, yeah. and we're trying to do that here so we're deliberately adopting the kind of most restrictive the worst case scenario for ourselves and then we're very careful to try and um, put everything in the intend that um, formulation in the book so that people won't accuse us of pulling a fast one and trying to take yeah. advantage of the what we say is a transparent context of intend to arrest Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde or intend to sack Superman or Clark Kent so um, that's why we're um, putting it in the in the that clause the whole time to in order to give ourselves the toughest possible job to make sure that people can't accuse us of taking shortcuts. But as I say, if yeah. your listeners think, no, 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 you, you know, intending to arrest Dr. Uh, Mr. Hyde is a totally different thing from arrest, intending to arrest Dr. Jekyll, then in a sense, they've actually made our job easier. But mm -hmm. for the sake of people that don't take that out it's probably best if i count in this video for talking about intending that such and such yeah no i think that's super helpful and anyone uh you know even like vaguely familiar with frig uh frega paradoxes will we'll find or hooded man or you know there's a, there's right. deception right. cases um that stuff's fun so i i like again so you guys you guys use pre-theoretical uh definitions and you use like the worst case scenario for yourself all this is great it's great like tactics to use in philosophy um because you're not trying to hide hide the ball or anything like that. I really I really appreciate that. Um, well, let's yeah, let's jump in on like the, uh, just a, a brief overview of of the debate. Uh, we've already kind of broached the fact that this thesis is a minority view in, in church history. Um, we, I think we should probably start with Augustine and his distinction between uh, evil and the existence of evil. Can you help us out with that? Well, again, um, uh, this is us steel manning the opposing view and, and if you like taking the worst case side for our point of view but yeah. we um augustine makes a distinction between sin and the existence of sin so he, augustine says and i can actually read out the uh, quotation if you think that would be helpful for your listeners um but uh, augustine says um that god here we go um that's just um see if i can find the um exact yeah i've got i've got, uh, I've got uh, one here too as well yeah, go on. the you one that's you that your version okay yeah so nothing therefore happens but by the will of the omnipotent he either per mm. he either permitting it to be done or himself doing it nor can we doubt that god does well even in the permission of what is evil for he permits it only in the justice of his judgment and surely all that is just is good although therefore Evil, insofar as it is evil, is not good. Yet the fact that evil as well as good exists is a good. For if it were not a good that evil should exist, its existence would not be permitted by the omnipotent good, who without doubt can be as easily uh, refused to permit what he does not wish, as bring about what he does wish. And that's Augustine. I don't know if that was the Great. same quote that you had in mind. No, yeah, that, that, that's that's right. Uh, thank you very much uh, for that. So the um, Augustine distinguishes between um, sin and the existence of sin, and he says God can't cause uh, um, uh, God doesn't will sin, but he does will that sin exist. Um, and this is then um, picked up. Um, uh, with um, Aquinas uh, uh, later on. Uh, so Aquinas says, opposing what we've been quoting from Augustine, Aquinas says, God neither wills evil to be done, 
nor wills it not to be done, but wills to permit evil to be done. So Aquinas starts off by saying, God neither wills evil to be done. And uh, we say that God does will that evil should be done um, against uh, Aquinas. Um, the, so the, but we want to be um, clear that, um, and Augustine and people, um, even the Protestant tradition that, that follow like Jonathan Edwards, for example, are clear that there's a difference between um, sin, which is bad, and the existence of sin or the occurrence of sin, which can be good in the in the in the greater context. And we think that's a very uh, that could be a very important um, the distinction. Of course, if if you don't um, grant that distinction, then actually it should be easier for us to argue for our thesis from the biblical passages. Um, but if you do grant that distinction, then we need to do a bit of extra work um, to um, to try and show that God does will that that sin should be done. Um, yeah. But yes, the um, uh, uh, we think that. Um, uh, um, that the distinction, uh, while it's not essential to our, our work by any means, is prominent in the historical discussion um, of the of the case, and that's why we kind of flag it up really in, in what we say. Would you like me to um, say a little bit more about the, the way that the tradition split, Parker? Uh, yeah, so, well, really briefly. Um... You're saying that you know if this distinction doesn't hold, then then the case is made even more uh, uh, readily or easily from from the text of scripture. So like uh, Aquinas, uh, so Augustine has this distinction: sins bad, sins existence is not necessarily bad based on like the context of what God's using it for. Maybe um, Aquinas says uh, Aquinas, I believe, still upholds the distinction, but says both are bad, but permitting both is bad. is not bad. But then uh, people like um, like Arminius, I think, would say the distinction is not, there, there is no distinction. Is, is that right? Does that sound like Ar Arminius? It is uh, like Arminius. It's actually, we have a quotation from Arminius in the book. Let me just see if I can um, turn it up um, to, uh, um, to, to read it out. There's actually an index in the back of our book, which is um, okay. uh, helpful, but Aquinas, uh, Arminius features quite a lot in it, so um, I'm trying to find the um, the right quotation is a little bit um, a little bit tricky. Yeah. yeah um, hang on a moment. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is what Arminius uh, says. Um, okay, here's so here's a um, actually let me just back up a bit. Um, yeah. The um, the quotation you gave from Augustine was a very good one, um, uh, Parker, but it's actually an even better one. So just okay. back up and give you the better uh, quotation from Augustine, and then I'll give you Aquinas' take on it, and then Arminius' take. So here's okay. the best quotation which Augustine gives. Okay, he says, Although, therefore, evil, insofar as it is evil, is not a good, yet the fact that evil, as well as good, exists, is a good. So that's the clearest place where Augustine draws distinction. So your your example before was great. This one's even clearer, actually. Now then Aquinas then picks up on, on that, and he says, some have said that although God does not will evil, yet he wills that evil should be or be done. So some have said 
is Augustine, but he doesn't actually name it here. Because although evil is not a good, yet it is good that evil should be or be done. This they said because things evil themselves are ordered to some good end, and this order they thought was expressed in the words that evil should be or be done. Okay, that's Aquinas's um, line. So as you say, he doesn't um, reject that distinction, but he affirms that God neither wills evil nor wills that evil be done. And now you yeah. wanted to know about Arminius. So Arminius um, says, talking about the fall, which is of course a preeminent example of a sin. He says, for they, these are his opponents um, in the tradition of Augustine, distinguish yeah. between the fall and the event of the fall. They say that God willed that the fall should occur, but did not will the, the fall should occur, but did not will the fall. The yeah. distinction is verbal and not real. He who willed that the fall should occur, willed also the fall. He who willed that the fall should occur, willed the event of the fall, and he who willed the event of the fall, willed the fall. That's um, Arminius's his view. So he tries to collapse the distinction. Um, yeah. uh, now, from our point of view, say this, this uh, doesn't matter. Um, we definitely don't want to say that God wills sin or intends sin, to cool, simplicity like that, because you know Augustine and people like that would be very upset with that. Um, yeah. But um, we want to uh, to say the other half of the um, of the divide, which is that God wills or intends that sin occur, and that's what we think can be uh, demonstrated um, uh, from the the scriptures. Um, yeah. So that's the um, so we wouldn't regard you know, Arminius's, um, you know, attempt to collapse the distinction as, as kind of threatening our, our project at all. Oh, oh, so it doesn't, it doesn't uh, threat, is that because he's wrong? Or is that because even if you do collapse it, it's no problem, uh, like based on the text of scripture? Well, um, that's, a, that's a, a good question. We, um, um, there's, the scriptures say um, that God does not sin. Okay, mm -hmm. that's very clear. But they never say God does not will sin or God does not intend sin. And they never say, of course, God does not intend that sin occur or God does not will that sin occur. So, um, uh, it, you know, we are. Um, uh, so, uh, if Arminius thinks, "Ha, I can disprove this view really easily because the Bible yeah. teaches." Um, God does not will sin, or God does not will uh, God does not intend sin. Therefore, I can disprove by that view, uh, by that the view that we're putting forward, which is God does right. not. Uh, the, he can disprove the view that God does will or intend that sin occur. Then Arminius, um, even if um, the we were to grant him the collapse of the distinction, he still doesn't have the biblical proof that God doesn't will sin or God doesn't intend sin. Okay. Yeah. Now yeah. I'm careful to put that in the negative Parker that okay. the Bible doesn't say that. I mean it doesn't have the biblical proof because as I say, we are um very careful in the book not to kind of annoy Augustine's um um uh, followers. We don't commit ourselves to Augustine's distinction 
but we certainly don't yeah. reject it either. There is, I mean, um, there's obviously a distinction between intending or willing to sin and intending or willing that sin occur, because yeah. um, we definitely deny that God intends or wills to sin. Okay, and yeah. you know it's easy to think, you know, of, of even normal examples in the world. Right, the mafia boss wants to keep his hands clean or her hands clean, so he or she says, "I will that my subordinates do the murder," and he or she doesn't will to murder him or herself because the whole point is that they want to keep their hands clean. So right. um, uh, we're quite used in normal life to making that distinction between willing that somebody else do something, perhaps on your behalf, and willing to do it yourself. Okay, um, and um, uh, uh, that's you know very important and a natural distinction that we make every day. Um, but yeah. we um, just to say it again to make sure that all your listeners and hearers get this clearly. So we absolutely 100% emphatically deny that God ever wills to sin. We 100% emphatically deny that God intends to sin. What we're saying yeah. is that the Bible teaches that God intends that sin occur on the part of other people. Yeah. Yeah, that that's so helpful. Uh, this is why I love um, this is why I love philosophy. Just it's it, it's it's really. I can see a listener being like, "This is just pedantic," and taking the Arminian Arminius line and saying like, "No, that's this distinction is not real." But you, you have to make that argument. You can't just say like, "No, it's not real," because they are two different things. Because they do, you know, even have like, they pick out um, you know different contexts, opaque or transparent, and. It's just, it's fun to be like, this is what's actually going on. And you have to make an argument. You can't just, you can't just wipe it off uh, that, that easily. So I think that's, that's really helpful um, distinction. It's also helpful to note that, uh, that this is found in uh, Augustine who, you know, like universally almost uh, is respected amongst the Christians and the Christian tradition and not just, uh, you know, that, that dirty Calvin, you know, like uh, though Calvin agrees with, with Augustine, I found it fascinating as you guys are going, we don't have to go through the full list of theologians, but we talked about this a little bit uh, off air that Francis Turretin came along and said, you know, eh, Calvin wasn't quite right on this point. And so um, there are going to be listeners who are many, many listeners will be uh, taking the Arminius line, but then others, uh, even in the reformed circles would be like, that's, you know, Calvin might've been wrong here. Look at even Turretin said Calvin was wrong. Um, can you just recount? That for us, real quick, about Turretin, his disagreement. Did did he really disagree with Calvin on this point? Sure. Well, thank you. Yes. Um, just so let me may I very briefly before we go on to that, that the other reason why we would never say God wills or intends sin is because it's ambiguous. Okay. I mean, it, it's unclear uh -huh. what it exactly means. Just like, you know, if I intended that my son marry, is it true to say that I intend marriage? Because I don't intend to marry. I intend that my son marry. But does that mean, is it then true to say that Daniel Hill intends marriage on the part of his son? Well, to say he intends marriage is, is vague or ambiguous. Um, we don't like vagueness and ambiguity. We obviously can't afford, avoid it 100%, but we try as hard as we can to avoid it. And so that's the other reason, not just to keep Augustinians happy, but also because we think <laughs> that the phrase is, is uh, very unhelpful because it's so vague 
and um, ambiguous. So that's the other reason why we'd never say God intends sin or God wills sin. Okay. Yeah. Um, yes, the um, the view that we defend is put forward by Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Macovius, Perkins, Bain, Edwards, uh, Tucker, the New England theologians, Arthur Pink, and a contemporary theologian that some of you, uh, your listeners may have heard of called John Piper. But we're mm-hmm. um, open that it's opposed by Aquinas, Baxter, Turretin, Arminius, Quenstead, Charnock, and Benson, and many others as well that we don't list. And it's in the Roman Catholic tradition, uh, they tend to follow Aquinas. Um, and um, so it's very, very rare to find a post-Aquinas Roman Catholic figure that will agree with us. Though, in fact, uh, Lombard, so this is a pre-Aquinas um, thinker, says, um, for it is clear that God acts in the hearts of human beings, inclining their wills whithersoever he wishes, either to goods out of his mercy or to evils. So mm. he says, Lombard says, that God inclines the will to evil. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the um, Satoritin, uh, uh, about whom you're asking, he never, of course, says, because he's very reverential towards John Calvin, he never says, Calvin says this and he's wrong. Uh, so he never mentions Calvin by name, but he does give the opposing view. And he has um, uh, a, quite a complicated um, uh, way of, of putting it. Let me see if I can find a, um, a, a nice quotation um, uh, from, um, from Turretin. Um, let's see. Um, okay. Um, he says, God, therefore, properly does not will sin to be done, but only wills to permit it. That's Turretin's mm-hmm. view. So um, yeah. he thinks God wills that he should permit sin, but he does not will or intend that God God does not will or intend that sin be done. Be yeah, and that sounds just like Aquinas, sin. right? That that's like yes, you know, yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah. And okay. I, I think Turretin's well aware of uh, of that, and he sees himself as as following Aquinas rather than uh, Calvin in this um, okay. area. And I think if you kind of got him up against the wall, which of course would be very easy for you, Parker, to do with your <laughs> jujitsu skills, then I think he would admit, he would say, something like, oh, well, Calvin was being a little bit imprecise, you know, you can't blame him, he was so busy, he's writing so many commentaries, um, and um, uh, but strictly speaking, um, he didn't get it quite right. He'd say something like that. Maybe I should read out some of the Calvin bits just for your listeners and viewers, oh, sure. because um, yeah. um, he says um, in he says, God wills that the perfidious Ahab should be deceived. Um, and he says, it would be ridiculous for a judge only to permit and not also to decree what he wishes to be done. So God decrees that Ahab should be deceived. And of course, deception is a sin in Calvin's view, indeed in our view. Um, and then he also says, it offends the ears of someone who said, God willed this fall. For what else I pray is the permission of him who has the power of preventing and in whose hand the whole matter is placed, but his will. So Calvin thinks, and Doriton doesn't go along with this, but Calvin thinks that if God willingly permits something, that's the same as to will it. And yeah. so he actually says, God wills the fall. And again, we don't like the noun phrase there. We prefer to say God wills 
or intends that the fall should occur. Um, yeah. But Calvin just says God wills the fall uh, here, um, and um, uh, and they say Toritin is more nuanced and um, and would say no, he doesn't will the fall. He wills that the fall should occur. Would be what Toritin would say. Yeah. Yeah. No, sorry, yeah, no, is... that's, that's wrong. That's wrong. Sorry, I'm, I, I'm, sure. I messed that up. Um, he, uh, he do, wouldn't say that. He would say that, um, strictly speaking, he did not will that the fall uh, should occur. We say that God willed that the fall um, should occur, but Torriton says God probably does not will sin to be done, but only wills to permit it. So Torriton yeah. says God willed to permit the fall, but he did not will that the fall should occur. So we say both. He willed that he should permit the fall and he willed that the fall should occur. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really, that's a really good distinction and important. There's, a, there's a, like a, I don't know if it's tangential, tangential or just like if it's closely related or not, but even, even in intending that the fall should occur, I think there's different ways like that. We're, we're also not getting into like the, the manner in which God wills or like the, the mechanism right. by which he's willing. It's not like, like if God puts an evil desire in your heart and that's how he's intending it to happen, well then, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe there's some like culpability that, that is, you know, transmitted back to God or something, but that's a different, that's a different question. We're not talking about like yes. the free will mechanics of what's going on right now. Um, right. Just that he so intended that. that it does occur. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. You yeah. finished what you'd say. No, um, I, I, yeah. I, I just think that that's important. Yeah. No, it, it is important. Thanks for raising that, Parker. So yes, we're explicit in the book. We're trying to keep um, it as open as possible. We're not trying to pick fights. We've already got enough on our hand with the, the <laughs> fight about whether or not God intends that sin occur. So we don't, um, we're very clear that we don't get into the debate about, for example, whether God causes that sin occur. And in fact, everything in the book should be acceptable to a, a Molinist, for example, um, huh. rather than a, uh, a Calvinist. I mean, I'm a, a Calvinist, and, and my co-author Matt is also a, a Calvinist. But um, but we don't presuppose Calvinism in the book. Mm. And say a Molinist can say, look, God didn't cause Adam to sin, but He put Adam in a position in which He knew He would freely sin. And this is yeah. the key point: the Molinist can say God intended that Adam should sin yeah okay yeah. um and uh, uh, they could say that about um you know everything that we say in the book really they could say yes we agree with everything that he'll have to say but we would add that it comes by this particular um uh, way of bringing it about which is the um weak actualization of um moralism rather than um what other people might say in fact we ourselves would say the authors that uh, God uh, brings it about without um, depending on a free will that he doesn't cause yeah. to take the particular line it does. Yeah. Amen. Well, um, okay. So, so we're going to get into some biblical texts here uh, for the, for the, uh, the, the more biblically minded who are saying, you know, what the heck? I clicked on this. I clicked on this link, and you guys are still not getting into the Bible. How dare you? We're going to get there. And Daniel uh, even suggested that we go there before some of this other stuff. So it is my fault. But you guys who do listen uh, regularly know who I am and know what I like. So I I like the Bible, but I want to get some tools in place for us to be able to think through it. So um, real quick, before we're, we're going to get into Exodus four twenty one and Romans nine twenty one through twenty four. But before that, there's a couple 
different hooks for us to hang stuff yep. on, which I would like to yes. get into. So um, just uh, you guys give this like more formal propositional form, I guess, of the argument or the, the thesis statement or something. It's it's P star. We don't have to get into yeah. all the different P's and how we get into the star, but God chooses to bring it about that a sin occur in order that a state of affairs that can obtain only in virtue of the sins occurring should obtain. So that's, yes. that's where we're going. That's, that's, that's like what we're going to be looking for and stuff. Um, maybe just a word about like the, the bring it about relation. Yes. Can, can you help us with that? Yes. Thank you. The, uh, I'm grateful that you've drawn attention to that. Again, we don't really mean anything very particular by uh, bring it about. We've chosen that so that the Molnists can sign up to it if they want to. Um, uh, so we didn't, it doesn't have to be full on causation, which is what Calvinists typically would say it is. Um, um, but, uh, and of course, there's also this debate, which is going to be very important, actually, that you um, can't cause sin because sin is an absence. Uh, that's what many uh. people in the tradition uh, believe. So we want to allow um, for that as well. So um, that's why I use the bring it about locution. Um, to explain the state of affairs that can obtain only in virtue of sins occurring. The reason why we're looking for this is because we think that's the best evidence that we can find in the Bible that God intends that sin occur. If mm. God chooses to bring it about that a sin happen, you could say, ah, well, um, uh, it's true they choose to bring it about that a sin happen, but, um, uh, you, you know, he, he didn't um, intend that the uh, sin should happen. He just chose to do this action by putting Adam in the Garden of Eden, which the Molinists would say, with the yeah. consequence, the foreseen consequence, that the sin would follow on. But he didn't intend that that sin should follow on. Somebody might say yeah. that. So yeah. in order to try and refute that view, that objection to us, what we're looking for, Parker, is a case where God chooses to bring it about that a sin occur and... The reason why he's bringing it about, his intention in bringing about that that sin occur, is that a further state of affairs should obtain, that can obtain, logically speaking, only in virtue of the sins occurring. Right. right. So he needs right. the sin to occur. Yeah. And what we're going to say is that that is the best evidence that he intended that the sin occur. He wanted to bring about a state of affairs that needed a sin to occur. Yeah. He did bring about that state of affairs and he intended to bring about the state of affairs. But then he knew, of course, that the sin was necessary for it. And we say that's very strong evidence that he intended that the sin should yes. occur. So to put a bit of yeah. a flesh on the bones, suppose for the sake of argument, suppose God intended um, and in fact desired as well um, that he should forgive us. Well, logically speaking, you can't forgive somebody unless they've actually sinned. If they're sinless, yeah. it's impossible to forgive them. So if the Bible says God chose to bring it about that we sin in order that we might be forgiven, we say that's strong evidence that God intended that we sin because yeah. the only way to get to the desired and intended ulterior goal of forgiveness, the only way to get there is through sin, the occurrence of sin. Yeah. Yeah. And God knows this, of course, because he knows everything. 
So we say that's strong evidence that God actually intended that the sin should happen. Just like my ulterior goal of having nice teeth, um, a goal <coughs> is a bit far off for me, but, um, but my intention and my goal that I should have nice teeth means that I need to <coughs> intend that I go to the dentist because I know that the only way for me of getting to the goal of having nice teeth is by going to the dentist. And that's why I intend to go to the dentist. Now, note, we say it doesn't follow from that that we I desire to go to the dentist, that I regard that as a, a nice and good thing. I just, it's necessary and I do it because I know it's necessary and I intend that I go to the dentist because I know it's necessary in order to achieve my ultimate goal of having nice teeth. Now, in that particular case, of course, it's not logically necessary, it's just causally necessary for me. Now, God, because he's omnipotent, isn't bound by causal necessity. But most people in the tradition, apart from uh, Luther and Descartes, have said that God is, um, a, you know, that not bound by the laws of logic, but he, he certainly always abides by the laws of logic. Let's put it um, like that to avoid using the word bound. And yeah, consistent and to his own nature. Yeah, consistent to his yeah. own nature. This, this there's a, a big debate here about the best way to put it, but he certainly also abides by the laws of logic, and therefore, if it's um, if it's logically impossible to achieve this state of affairs, the ultimate goal, without sin, then God has to bring about sin, that sin occur in order to get to the goal. And we say that's very strong evidence that he intends that the sin should occur because that's the only way of getting his ultimate goal. So in that example, forgiveness, absolutely impossible without sin. So if God wants to bring about forgiveness, then he's got to bring about sin. Or at least yeah. I say bring about bring about sin, but remember I'm trying to allow Molnus to sign up to this as well. So something like God has to do an action such that uh, he foresees that sin will be the current sin will be inevitable result of that action, something like that. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And going back to that shoe analogy, um, yeah, that, that we mentioned prior. So in in that analogy or in that scenario, whatever it is, metaphor, whatever, uh, you you have these shoes and uh, they're new. They got new soles, and you have foresight that like if I keep wearing these, especially if I wear them over there on that rough ground then the, the soul is going to wear out. But I'm not intending that they wear out. I just have foresight to it. However, in a different scenario where you uh, <clears throat> you want to go in disguise, incognito, and you want to look uh, like you have uh, poor person shoes or something, like that you've, you know, whatever, you're, you're in a play or something and you want a scuffed up shoe, uh, then you're actually, uh, that's this end goal and you are intending that your, uh, that your shoes will be worn down not not in and of themselves, but for this purpose of, of something yes, else. That's right. And so that's that's more of the scenario where yeah, God has right. to intend that sin that sin occur because there's a either subsequent, you know, good or antecedent right. good or something like that. Does it that's a, a question about I'm very grateful to you. Sorry to interrupt, Parker, but you've, yeah, that's please. a really important a point which I, I should have said before that we're certainly not saying, of course, and we emphatically deny that God intends that sin occur as an end in itself. Absolutely right. not. Whenever God intends that sin occur, he's always got a good ultimate aim beyond that, like forgiveness, to go back to that example, for which yeah. the sin is a necessary, a logically necessary precondition. The occurrence of sin is a logically necessary precondition. 
Yeah. So and so that that's um that was a point that I was getting to about um whether whether the <clears throat> whether there it needs to be a greater good or whether it's like just a a, a, a subsequent good that like couldn't happen unless do, do you guys mention um whether or not it has to be like an overriding good or a greater good or anything like that? We don't mention that but but certainly we'd affirm that it would have to be an outweighing good, yes. Um, so in other words, outweighing. and that God um, never um, would intend that sin occur for a, a lesser good, right? The good yeah. of, to go with this example, the good of forgiveness would have to outweigh the um, badness of the sin in order um, to be worth it. Um, and certainly God being perfectly good would never do it for an unworthy goal, so yeah all yeah. god's goals are um in, are as worthy as can be um and, and we've got a lot um uh, views on this actually but all god's uh, uh goals as worthy as can be and certainly anything that god uh, brings about in pursuit of those uh, goals is justified uh by those goals it would just be plain immoral for god to bring about an evil that was not justified by his his goals and being perfectly moral god couldn't couldn't do that yeah yeah that's a that's a that's a helpful point i, I think you're right there and I, I we don't have to spend too much time on this or anything but i i i like pressing back on the uh the libertarian free will defense uh from the armenians uh because that is a greater good defense as well like, there's this greater good that, and that is free will. And and usually they yes. don't like the greater good thing. They think, oh, well, you're committed to consequentialist ethics or something like that. And it's like, well, too quoque, dude. Like, so so are you guys. So um, this is something that all of us have to wrestle with, I think, unless, you know, show me that show me that I'm wrong, um, listener. But uh, yeah, that the, the greater good thing is is a thoroughly Christian response, I think. So um and before it okay, to consequentialism either. Uh, I mean so yeah. consequentialism is a thesis consequence of the thesis that um, the primary locus of um, moral appraisal is in the state of affairs, the consequences the, of an action, yeah. okay? Yeah. And um, nothing that, that you've said and nothing that um, I'd want to say in, in explaining a greater good theodicy uh, would go, uh, would entail that um, uh, two quite separate um, uh, theses. And of course, there are um you know it um there are some things maybe that are um well maybe okay let's just leave it at that because otherwise i'm going to open a whole can of worms we're never going to get to <laughs> our bible passage so i better not say yeah. more. no that's good that's good yeah we, we might have to uh come back on and talk about them more my one of my uh former professors uh john feinberg i always wanted to dr john feinberg point like just poked me with that like oh i think you're a consequentialist even though he's a calvinist himself he the way he worked things out was different and so i'm still uh, i'm still triggered by that dr feinberg um so one more thing before we get to it this yeah. is um fm cams francis cam yeah. uh gives these uh counter examples to means and uh reasoning and right. just raises this uh principle of triple effect and as you yeah. guys said in the book this is really complex stuff maybe we could just yes. like kind of wave at it before we jump into the text sure um the okay so um the we in the book um matt and i um discuss two possible alternative strategies in opposition to us 
And the reason why they're strategies is they're philosophical theses that could be used against us in all these biblical texts that we discuss. So they're kind of like a master strategy that will tell you how to interpret any given Bible verse against our interpretation, which we think is the natural interpretation. So one is Francis Cam's view. And Francis Cam's your listeners or viewers don't know, she's a contemporary philosopher. She's still alive and working in at um, Harvard. And um, she has argued um, very persuasively, we think, that there's a difference between um, acting intending that a certain consequence should result on the one hand and acting because that consequence should result on the other. Now, again, I should say this is a steel manning, if you like that word, the opposition. If you don't agree with Francis Cam, that's just going to make our job easier. Um, mm. But um, because this is an opposition um, uh, to us. But she says that um, you can uh, perform an action foreseeing that a certain result is going to arise and act because that result is going to arise without intending that result. So here's the example which we give in, in the book. I'll put it, it's like perhaps easier for me to give our own uh, version of it rather than her version. I can give you her exact sure. words if you want. So um, this is her example. Suppose I want to host a party in order that my friends and I might enjoy ourselves. That's the goal here, the ultimate goal. I know, however, that the party will produce a mess so that's the foreseen bad side effect, a mess. Yeah. And the mess will ruin the party so that none of us will enjoy ourselves for long. So that's another foreseen bad side effect consequent on the mess. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is a defeater for my plan. It's sufficient to dissuade me from hosting the party. So the problem here, the foreseen side effect is so bad that it um, means that the goal is not worth it. Yeah. But then I realize, she says, that the friends that I invite would surely, on account of their own good naturedness, feel indebted to me. And that's another bad thing. Feeling indebted, Cam says, and we agree, is a bad thing. Mm. So this looks like it's another foreseen bad effect. And consequently, feel obliged to help me tidy up afterwards. So now this is a good effect that's emerging mm -hmm. from a foreseen bad effect. This is a defeater for my defeater, so I plan to host the party after all. In such a case, I intend to host an enjoyable party. And the bad effect of my friends feeling indebted to me is necessary for me to accomplish this. Right? So it's a yeah. necessary means to her end or goal. When I invite my friends to return, however, this is the key point, it does not have to be my intention in doing so that they feel indebted. Hmm. My intention can merely be that they attend the event. I simply foresee that by inviting them, I shall also bring about their feeling indebted to me such that they will help tidy up. We might say that even if I don't invite my friends intending that they feel indebted and so help clean up, I invite them because they will, out of their feeling of indebtedness, help clean up. As Cam puts it, it's important to distinguish between doing something in order or intending to bring about something else on the one hand and doing something because of something else that will thus be brought about on the other hand. Okay. Yeah. So that's 
Cam's um, revolutionary proposal. And as far as we can see, for a thousand years, well, certainly for hundreds of years anyway, before Cam, everybody had assumed that you had to intend the foreseen means to your end. Okay, if you foresaw that something was a necessary means to your mm -hmm. end that you were bringing about, then you had to intend it. And Kant and many other people just absolutely explicit say, "Oh yes, this is obvious." Yeah. And until Cam, everybody seemed to accept this obvious, and Cam disproves it. Now, as I say again, this is a kind of steel manning are uh, the opposition view because if it were true that you had to intend your foreseen or foreknown necessary means to your end, we'd have a very easy job because we yeah. think it's quite easy to show that the occurrence of sin is a necessary means to certain ends or goals that God has in Scripture. Okay, right. um, And so be a much shorter book in, in, in that eventuality. But... As I say, we're still manning the opposition, taking, giving ourselves the worst possible um, situation to defend ourselves from. And so we're not assuming that it follows a matter of logic, that if you foresee that something's a necessary means to your end, you have to intend it. Okay. Right. Um, we're not assuming that, which makes our job more difficult. So we have to try and prove not only that God foreknows that this particular means, the occurrence of sin, is a necessary means to his end or goal, but actually that he intends it as well. And that's why yeah. the job's quite hard. Now, yeah. would you like me to talk about the other um, kind of opposing strategy here, Parker? Or do you want to ask any yeah. more about Francis Cam's line? No, I, I think that's great. That was really helpful. Um, yeah, okay. let's jump into that and then we can dive into the text. Great. So the other opposing line that we have to guard ourselves against is what we call the substratum strategy. Yeah. Now, um, the substratum uh, is just the Latin word for something that underlies um, a, uh, a particular thing. And in this case, the particular thing is the action. Now, perhaps a, a way that I think might be helpful for your listeners and viewers to get into this is to think about the law. And in law, in both um, where I live and where you live, the law makes a distinction between what they still call in Latin the mens rea and the actus reus. So to take an example, um, to be guilty at law of murder, you need not just to do a physical action of killing, but you have to have a guilty mind, a mens rea as well, intent to murder or to do serious bodily harm. Now, the action of murder, therefore, legally speaking, is a complex thing. It's got two parts, a mental part and a physical part. And yeah. the, um, the the physical part is the substrate or substratum of the mental part. Now, that's just an example to help um, people think their way into the distinction. Um, what the tradition says against us here, and this is a tradition that certainly Aquinas um, follows and Turretin to take the two people we're talking about before as well, and Arminius as well, very keen on this. Yeah tradition. So most of the, because I say Cam's point of view, uh, nobody heard of it or thought of it until, you know, 30 years or so ago. Right. Because of that, um, historically speaking, 
all the objections are on this line, the substratum line. And they take um, that kind of example I've just given from the law and apply it to all sins. So every sin, indeed every action actually, but let's just think about sins for the moment. Every sin has a substrate and they don't call this, but a, a superstrate, you could call it if you wanted to. Yeah. And the substrate is the underlying part of the action. And the other bit, um, what Aquinas sometimes calls the formal part of the action, the substrate being the material part. The formal part is what makes it a sin. So, for example, you know, um, if you've got, um, you might see, and this is quite a frequent um, occurrence, um, you might see, um, you know, one person taking something out of somebody else's bag. Yeah. And you think, hang on, has that person committed the sin or crime of theft? Well, you can't tell just from seeing the substrate. You can see the physical action of taking the book out of the bag. But you don't know that a sin or crime has been committed until you know about the other aspects, the formal aspects of the action. For example, whether um, the person realized that it was somebody else's bag, whether it was a mistake or whether they had permission to take it out. So just seeing the physical action is not enough to know that sin's been committed. So sins, just like crimes at law, sins are complex things that have a substrate that is morally neutral. And on top of that, they have the formal aspect, as Aquinas puts it, which gives it the distinctive moral quality. And the opposition to us argue here that in all the Bible verses that we will talk about, God intends that the substrate, the substratum occur, but he doesn't intend that the formal side of things obtain, that they, that it be morally bad. So to give a, an example that may be familiar um, to um, your viewers and listeners, if um, uh, and this is an example that's actually been used on our side, um, in the debate, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. But in the book, yeah. we acknowledge that the, our opponents got a kind of possible response here. So in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says um, to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And what is the evil? Well, it's that Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, um, how would our, on the face of it, it looks as though this is a great proof text for our view, Parker, because, yeah. um, because Joseph says, you meant it for evil, and it was a sin. Selling someone to slavery is a sin. Yeah. So you sinned, but God meant it, the same thing, and meant here, we say means intended or willed. God willed that it should occur for good. So the natural reading of the text, and actually we say it's the correct reading of the text, but the natural reading of the text is that one thing happened, a sinful thing, selling somebody into slavery. The brothers meant it for evil, and God meant that it should occur for good. Yeah. Now, you might think, whoa, that's good. We've proved... Daniel and Matt's point, we've proved the book's thesis that God intends that sinful actions should occur. But we, again, still manning the opposition here, we say, well, actually not quite as fast as that, uh, sadly for us. 
um, because this is where the substratum strategy, substrate strategy can come in to help our opponents. And Arminius, for example, does explicitly say this. So the idea is God intended the substrate of the action. So yeah. if you like, he intended the physical move of Joseph to Egypt. He intended mm -hmm. the brothers passing of money to the um, slave traders and the slave traders uh, all the way around. The slave traders passing money to Joseph, uh, to Joseph's brothers and Joseph's brothers bundling Joseph into the slave traders' arms. He intended those physical movements, but he didn't intend their sinfulness. Right. He didn't intend that the sinfulness obtain. That's, in a nutshell, the um, response from the substratum strategy. Now, one thing to say about this before we, we um, go on is that um, if some of your your viewers, I know most of your viewers and listeners are well into philosophy, but I think a normal person, somebody that wasn't uh, heavily into philosophy, might say, that's kind of a, a crazy um, interpretation that God intended just the physical um, moves and didn't intend their sinfulness, right? The yeah. Bible doesn't make that distinction there. And that's just a kind of crazy thing. Only a philosopher could have come up with such a crazy interpretation. I think that would be a natural response, and I think that should be a correct response. Huh. Um, so we do think the natural interpretation of that text is the one that we've said, which is that God intended that uh, the sin occur, the sinful handing over of Joseph to the slave traders intended that the sin should occur for a good end, namely to save many lives. But because we are philosophers, we feel it's our duty to try and steel man the opposition. And we say, yes, um, you know, we can't disprove from the text. The text doesn't prove their point of view, our opponent's point of view, the substratum strategy, but it doesn't disprove it either. Okay. Yeah. So yes, all right, you could say that God intended only the physical movements of the um, brothers, you know, bundling Joseph in there and the physical movement of Joseph all the way to Egypt. He intended that all those occur, but didn't intend they be sinful. And yeah. so you could, in theory, get out of it that way. And the reason why you could get out of it that way is because God's goal, getting Joseph to Egypt, doesn't actually require, logically speaking, that any sin occur. Okay. As a matter of fact, it did happen in a sinful way, but it could have happened differently. So there's no logical requirement here. And yeah. our opponents, we think, will seize on this point and say, aha, you know, because there's no logical requirement, it's perfectly sensible to say God intended that the physical, the underlying physical substrate occur, but he didn't intend the sinfulness of the action. So that's yeah. the two strategies. Yeah, that's that's helpful. And so like, yeah, there, there, God could have intended that uh, that you crash a car into me, but uh, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be that uh, you did it out of murderous intent or you know, uh, you know, premeditation. It could have been you know, second degree or third degree murder or manslaughter or you were texting or you were you know drunk or as long as the, the what what God intended was the car hitting me, but not the uh, intentions of in in your head or something. Does that sound right? Um, uh, th that's not quite how they would they would put it actually in the, the okay. history, but um, so that but that's along the right lines. Uh, they would put okay. it uh, 
even more cautiously than you've put it, Parker. They would say that God intends the um, uh, all the um, material, as Aquinas' word, the, the kind of substrate part of the actions, but the only bit that he doesn't intend is the formal thing, which is what makes it wrong, the sinful aspect of it. Okay, yeah. so you describe as all that you can of the action without saying that it's sinful. All of that, they say, God intends that all of that should occur. There's only one bit left, which is the additional factor that it be sinful. That, yeah. they say, God doesn't intend that that should obtain. Yeah. And we say, and this is where, say, we part company with Aquinas and Turretin and, and all the other people that I mentioned earlier. We say, no, the Bible teaches that actually God does intend not just that the substrate occur, obviously that, but not just that. He also intends, according to scriptures, that the sinful aspect of the substrate occur as well. In other words, that the whole sin happened. Be yeah, and, be and because, and so what we'll be looking for then is a, is a text where where that sinful action is looks like it is intended by God for a... Right. Uh, a necessary or for ne necessarily for a um, yes. greater good. Yeah. Um, right. So, so I guess that, that also um, just like limits the scope of the project too. And it's not that every sin has to be like that. It, it could be that like maybe some, I don't know, maybe some do follow a substrate view, but if you can point to one that is clearly, uh, clearly looks like God is intending the sin as well, then at least, there's at least one, or there's at least two. So, um, does does that does that have does that factor into your uh, joint uh, you know thesis here that God intends uh, that sins occur? It's not that God does it have a universal scope, and and is it is it uh, is it referencing every sin? Right. Thanks. That's a great question. So, no, we we're careful when we set it up. So, the question. Of our title is does god intend that sin occur and um we actually put it in the singular though in the, sins could have been better in some ways but worse in other ways and and um we the singular is there because it's enough for our thesis that god intended of only one sin right that it occur okay yeah. because aquinas and turretin etc they all say no uh absolutely hard universal negative there is never any sin. In fact, there never could be any sin such that God intended that that sin occur. They're very clear and emphatic on this. Now, as a matter of fact, we don't say this in the book, but as a matter of fact, Matt and I do hold the opposite view, the universal affirmative, if you like, that for everything that occurs in the world, God intended that it occur. So yeah. every single sin that occurs in the world, we say God intended that that sin occur. And in fact, every aspect of every thing that occurs in the world is intended um, that it should obtain by God. So that the sin should happen in this particular way. God intended that that occur. And it's worth perhaps just taking a, a moment here to do something we didn't do in the book, which is to say that, you know, um, we can see that this might be very upsetting for people that have been grievously sinned against right if somebody's right. really suffered at the hands of somebody else they might on the at first instinct say you know that's terrible you know that god intended that that person should sin against me in this horrible way but we actually find 
it comforting, this view, because we think it's more comforting to believe, yes, God intended every detail of what happened to me, even though it was terrible. He intended all the things because he had a good purpose for every right. single detail. So not yeah. a single second of suffering is wasted. Mm-hmm. Every single second of anybody's suffering is being used by God and was always intended by God for a greater good and outweighing good. And we actually find that a comforting view. And in fact, we would find the other view that some kind of sins are kind of outside God's control or plan in some way. Um, our opponents would probably say outside the plan rather than outside his control, but that that God didn't plan for this happen. On Somebody might at first find that comforting, but on deeper reflection, we actually find that not comforting because, yeah. you know, why then there's no rhyme or reason to why it happened. And and that's profoundly uncomforting if you yeah. think, you know, this terrible thing happened to me for no reason or no mm-hmm. purpose. And we actually think it is incredibly comforting and helpful to know that even the most terrible things that happened in the history of the world happened for a purpose. And of course, one of the things that we do discuss in the book is the most terrible event that did happen in the history of the world, which is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the most sinful event that ever happened in the world. And we maintain that the scriptures teach of that very example, that God intended that it happen. And of course, he intended it to happen for a very good end or goal, namely the salvation of many people and the glory of God's name in the enlargement of his kingdom and the winning of many people to form a church as a bride for his son. So, um, uh, you know, if if that's true of the most terrible and wicked thing that ever happened in the history of the world, then even stuff that the scriptures don't talk about, we say that we can be confident in saying that they also are intended, it's in, God intends that they occur and he intends that they occur for great good. Yeah, even while while not knowing what those goods uh, are, you right. you can just reason right. it, and you could say, well, it's warranted, yeah. justified, or whatever. Because if he can do it with the worst, then he can do it with lesser, like the evil that I experience in my own life. And I, I'm I'm with you 100 percent on that. I know some people might follow like uh, Peter Van Wagen's you know free will defense, and and you know there's random evil that's distributed uh, distributed randomly. And to me, I'm like, man, that just sounds rough, and it seems like it it exacerbates the problem of gratuitous evil um they have ways of doing getting around it but i'm with you that it's more comforting to say like this is this god has a reason for it it's in it's in his power um right let's let's be clear uh, i'm not saying sorry just to be clear i'm not saying parker and i want your viewers and listeners to hear me clearly this that i'm not saying it's true because it's comforting i think it's true because it's what the bible teaches but i also think it's comforting Okay, I and Peter's view, Peter van Emmergen's view that you've just described, that there are evils for which there's literally no explanation. You know, God doesn't intend that they happen and um, he permits them to happen in some sense, but there's no rhyme or reason for that at all. I think that view is disproved by the scriptures, but also Mm. I think that's profoundly uncomforting, that view. Right, right. Yeah, that's good. That's a good qualification. I appreciate that. Um, all right, so let's jump in. We're at the biblical text now, finally, for for the for everyone. Yeah, uh, Exodus four twenty one. 
Uh, I'll just read it out real quick and then we can we can jump in. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Boom. Thank you. So um, we uh, we could have we talk about a lot of Bible passages in the uh, book and the ones about hardening are really central for our purposes. Um, and this is a kind of classic example. It's much discussed in tradition, and we think it's pretty clear. So the key point here is that God hardens his heart, Pharaoh's heart, okay? And that means that he's making him sin, or he's, if you don't like the word make, he's bringing it about that yeah. Pharaoh sins, okay? Because he does, Pharaoh does all these terrible, sinful things, saying no to Moses in particular, when Moses once says, let my people go. So Pharaoh sins, and he sins as a result of the hardening of the heart. And that's what the hardening of the heart means. It produces sin. And we're told in this verse, Parker, the goal or aim of the hardening of the heart, so that Pharaoh will not let the people go. And that's a sin. So God hardens the heart. He performs the action of hardening the heart in order that a sin should occur. Yeah. namely the sin of not letting the people go okay and in fact if we look on a bit we actually find um, an explanation of why um god wants pharaoh not to let the people go so the ultimate goal this is from exodus 9 13 to 16. thus says the lord the god of the hebrews moses uh, or god telling moses what he's got to say let my people go that they may serve me for this time i will send all my plagues on you yourself that's pharaoh and on your servants, that's the Egyptians, and your people, so those are the Egyptians, so that you may know that there's none like me in all the earth. For by now, says God, I could have put out my hand and struck you, that's Pharaoh, and your people, the Egyptians, with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, so here's the goal, for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Mm. So, God's ultimate goal here is that his name should be proclaimed in all the earth and that Pharaoh should see God's power. Yeah. And we know how God demonstrates his power. He does all the plagues. He kills the firstborn Egyptians. He parts the Red Sea for the Israelites and then drowns the Egyptians in the Red Sea. Okay, so um, they are punished. That's a punishment on Pharaoh. His, the plagues are a punishment on him for his sinful refusal. And his death and the Egyptians' death in the water of the Red Sea are a punishment on them for Pharaoh's refusal. Now, you can't logically punish somebody unless you think they're guilty of something, unless you think they've right. sinned. And therefore, God, when he punishes Pharaoh, and who intends to punish Pharaoh, knows that he can't punish him without Pharaoh being sinning, without Pharaoh sinning, okay? Because God, being perfectly just, couldn't punish somebody sinless. Because obviously you know that they're sinless. So how does God then achieve this goal of showing Pharaoh's power? He needs Pharaoh to sin in order to be able to achieve this goal. If Pharaoh had been sinless, and God had put all these plagues on him, that would have been immoral. 
okay, right. wouldn't have demonstrated God's glorious name at all. It would have been immoral. So that's obviously impossible for God. So the only way he can do what he wants to do, show his power in the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and the drowning of the Egyptians, the only way he can do that is if Pharaoh sins. Now, we know that God gets Pharaoh to sin. That's what we said before. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Not letting the people go is a sin. And God says, I will produce it. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that, in order that, he will not let the people go. So God's ultimate goal is punishing Pharaoh. In order to achieve that, he needs intermediate goal that Pharaoh's sin. In order to achieve that, he needs to do the action of hardening his heart. So we say God intends all three of these things. He, According to this text, this is the natural reading of the text. He intends that he harden Pharaoh's heart. That's um, less controversial. Yeah. And secondly, he intends the result of his hardening Pharaoh's heart, namely, as it says here, so that in order that he will not let the people go. So he intends Pharaoh's sinful refusal. Obviously, yeah. God knows that it's sinful. He intends Pharaoh's sinful refusal. And he intends Pharaoh's, he intends Pharaoh's sinful refusal in order that he might justly punish Pharaoh and demonstrate his power in the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and drowning of the Egyptians. So we say that this text, Exodus 4.21, teaches that God intends that a sin occur, the sin of Pharaoh's saying no to Moses. Yeah. Yeah. Does this, um, <clears throat> I think it's, it's so tough to keep, keep the right, uh, keep the right, um, conclusion in mind that like this is speaking to the text this is speaking to god's intentions whether or not he intended evil and and all these other things jump in just right away like well does that mean that god can it, 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 does that make him the author of of uh, pharaoh's sin then like does he is he morally culp is god morally culpable can he actually hold pharaoh morally responsible for the actions after he hardened it and that's not really what's what's at um that's not what's um in view here uh there's there's i think there's a lot of different ways you could go about it how did god harden his heart like uh, kevin van hooser might say well you know he presented his goodness to him but he didn't give him the uh he didn't persuade him and didn't illuminate him a, a molinist might say you know god through his middle knowledge knew what would uh what pharaoh would do if given this uh this uh reply uh via moses like there's a lot of different ways to do it and to look at God's um, actions being right and continually uh, holding Pharaoh responsible. But that's not really what's going on here, right? Like, we're just looking at the intention and the actual text. Does, right. does that seem so right? The, the text doesn't say how God hardened right. Pharaoh's heart. And in fact, none of the hardening texts in the Bible ever says how it happens, how it works. Yeah. But they do say that hardening of the heart leads to sin. And then we mm. see that in this example. And mm. it also, in this example, we say, this example shows that not only it does lead to sin, but it's intended that sin should occur as a result. That's yeah. the, the key point. Would you like me to say a word or two about why we think CAM's approach and the substart approach can't work here? Yeah, yeah. I, I think especially... Okay. 
especially Cam's view, because I was thinking maybe someone might go all the way to like God's name being known on the earth. And that would be like this primary intention, or that would be like right. the goal. And then the rest are just kind of, you know, yeah. Can you, can you, yeah, I think definitely, uh, especially cams, but, but both would be, okay. would be helpful. Well, I'll start with the substratum because that's perhaps a bit easier, but so okay. the substratum view we say won't work here because it won't do for God to say, God merely to intend that, you know, Pharaoh say the word no to Moses or the Egyptian equivalent of the word no to Moses without intending that you do so sinfully. And the reason why that won't work is because God needs that Pharaoh's sin in order to be able to punish him. Okay. So he's got to have, it's got to be not just, um, and compare it with the case of Joseph. When we're talking about Joseph, we conceded, Parker, Matt and I conceded, that um, our opponents had a case here, the substratum um, approach had a case. We don't think it's a very good case, actually, but it is a yeah. case. Because they can say, ah, God intended only the physical movements of uh, Joseph, and he didn't intend they'd be sinful. They've got no case at all here, we say, because if they say, oh, God intended only the physical movements of Pharaoh's mouth saying no, well, yeah. that's not enough to justify punishment. But the whole point is God wants to demonstrate his name as a just punisher of sin. That's yeah. why he does the plagues. That's why he drowns Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Okay. But obviously, if you're going to be a just punisher of sin, there's got to be sin. It's not enough just to intend the physical movement of the mouth because that doesn't justify punishment. Right. So we say that the substratum line can't possibly wash here because the uh, that's a rather unfortunate phrase maybe talk about drowning the red sea can't possibly wash it's no good here. Yeah, um, <laughs> the um and we say it's no good because it doesn't do justice to the necessity of the sin for god's goal here yeah. now cam wants to say that um god uh intends that his name be proclaimed as the punisher of sin. And he knows that sin is a necessary means to that. And he actually does because, okay, it's going to have that effect. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't intend that it have that effect. Yeah. Now, what we say in response to um, Cam is um, God being perfectly rational never acts without an intention. Right? He doesn't do anything kind of randomly or whimsically or, um, you know, without intending something by it. I mean, that's to say, it's either got to be an end in itself or it's got a further intended goal. Now, yeah. what's the um, intention of the hardening here? Well, certainly the intention of the hardening is not an end in itself, right? That would be immoral to intend hardening as an end in itself because hardening is a bad thing so it's definitely not um a a goal in itself but what then is the intention well the ultimate intention is the um demonstration of his power in all the earth as a just punisher but how does god intend that this particular 
Um, and why does he like, how does God intend that this particular um, action of hardening should produce the desired result? Okay. Yeah. What in God's intentions connects the action with the ultimate goal? Now, in the case of Joseph, you could talk there about something that did connect. God's ultimate goal there was that people should be fed, lives should be saved in the case of famine, and that in order for that, Joseph had to be moved from um, you know, Canaan to Egypt. Yeah. Okay. So there, Cam could tell a story about God intending um, steps on the way that connect the um, first action of, int of the movement of Joseph's body to um, uh, Egypt with the ultimate goal of saving many lives. Yeah. But in this case, we say that um, Cam's approach doesn't seem to answer that question. It doesn't seem to explain how in God's intentions the hardening is intended to bring about the final result of um, the demonstration of his power as a just punisher. Now, Cam herself says you don't have to intend all the means to your goal, right? That's the key part of her view. Yeah. But you have to, but she does say you have to intend something, right, to achieve your goal because otherwise it's not. If you don't intend any means, then it's just it's not wishing. rational. It's not intended. Yeah. Okay. 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 You've got to intend some means to your goal, otherwise, it's just a, a you know, a hope or in, or a wish, not an intention. Yeah. And here we say that. Um, there's no, the text doesn't hold out any way for Cam to say that there's a means that's intended by God to bring about this, um, um, uh, to bring about this ultimate goal of yeah. his name being uh, um, demonstrated in all the world other than the one that we actually say. Now, maybe the it might be better to um, uh, to talk about some of the actual tests um, that Cam puts forward. So she gives three tests, which she takes from Michael Bratman for intention. So she says, if we intend to bring something about, this is test one, we seek means to accomplish the end of bringing it about. Now, look at this case. We say that God intends that Pharaoh's sin of saying no to God occur. So does that pass this test? Does God seek means to accomplish the end of Pharaoh's saying no? And we say yes. In fact, Pharaoh says no multiple times, okay? And God mm. actually harms his heart multiple times in the text, okay? Yeah. So we say yes, God certainly does seek means to accomplish the end of bringing about that Pharaoh sinfully say no. Second thing, if we intend to bring something about, we pursue it. That is, if one way fails to produce it, we adopt another way. This is really key, uh, a really key test here. So suppose that Pharaoh had um, 
had, you know, um, been about to um, say no in some kind of non-sinful way. You know, maybe like he didn't understand the request. Okay, so yeah. he said no because of a mistake. So it wasn't a sinful refusal. He'd misunderstood what was at issue. Right. We say that I mean, it's a bit hard to imagine, but um, we say in that case, for sure, I mean, the Bible doesn't actually say this, but we say this is implicit in the in the in the in the storyline. For sure, yeah, God would definitely have um, made the request absolutely clear to yeah. Pharaoh, so that Pharaoh would know that he was going against God. In other words, doing something sinful. And we say that because it's crucial for God's purposes in order that his name be known as the just punisher of sin, that it's a sinful um, refusal of Pharaoh. So if um, God had, um, you know, when God was considering how shall I bring about this state of affairs of my name being proclaimed as a just punisher of sin, he weighed up the various options and, uh, you know, um, if a way that had that didn't produce the sinful part of it we say he rejected that for that very reason he adopted yeah. the other way of making pharaoh act sinfully in order for this very um um goal of his name being proclaimed as the uh, just punisher of sin his power being demonstrated in the punishment of sin in order that that should obtain and we say that, although the text doesn't actually say this, that Cam's second test from Bratman, that if one way fails to produce your goal, you adopt another way, that this passes that test. Okay, okay? Yeah. because certainly God and Moses would have, um, well, I shouldn't have been Moses, sorry, that, that God would definitely have, um, you, you know, I've tried another way. And of course, he does try time and time again with Pharaoh, gives him lots of, um, chances, plenty of rope to hang himself with, you might say, and we say yeah. that he does that because he's um, wants to produce. He intends to produce that. This intends that there should be produced this sinful action. And the third test that Cam discusses is this: if we intend something, and our intention should be consistent as far as we're rational, then we will filter out intentions that conflict with intending it. And we say that it also. Um, uh, passes this test again. This isn't, um, you know, in black and white in the text, but we say that it's certainly consistent with the storyline that um, God doesn't have any contrary intentions, and there's nothing in the text where, that says that God tries to, um, it, you know, God intends that Pharaoh shouldn't sin. Okay, right. he, God's omnipotent. He certainly could have stopped Pharaoh from seeing. And in fact, if you go back to the um, Exodus 9 passage, God says in verse 15, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people of peasants and you would have been cut off from the earth. So this is before the part of the Red Sea and all that. So God could have sorted out the whole business ages ago. Right. And we say that the reason he didn't is because he's building up Pharaoh's sinfulness in order for the justice of his punishment to be displayed. Now, has that helped in trying to explain why we think the Cam reading is not a persuasive reading of the text? I mean, I'm sure the opponents could say more here, but 
um, uh, you know, I don't. I would like to be able to go on to the New Testament text as well, so I don't want to spend too much yeah. time on it. Well, I think that's that is helpful, and um, let's let's go on to Romans nine because it also yeah. talks about uh, hardening and stuff, and so yes. we can we can you know, double down on it even in the New Testament text as well. Um, so I have Romans one. nine. Yeah. Oh yeah. If you want to, if not, I could do it either way. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll I'll, I'll read it then. So I'll sure. I'll start at verse fifteen. So um, uh, this is Paul writing. He says, "For he that's uh, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion." So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is moulded say to its moulder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he's called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? So that's verse mm. 24. So what we say about this text, Parker, is this. So God's ultimate goal here is in verse 23, to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. And that's Christians. Um, now, how does he bring about that goal? Well, the text says, it says, God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power. Now, um, what is he doing when he's desiring to show his wrath? Answers in during with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, God's wrath, Parker, is not like our wrath, right? Our wrath might be unjustified against people that haven't sinned. God's not right. like that. His wrath is only ever against sinners. So if God desires to show his wrath, there's got to be sinners because he can't show his wrath if there's no sinners because that would be immoral and therefore impossible. Yeah. So God has, um, um, the previous verse explains this, He's made out of the same lump, the lump of humanity, one vessel for honourable use, that's the elect or Christians, and another for dishonourable use. That's what theologians call the reprobates, um, people that uh, aren't Christians and never become Christians. So that's the vessel for dishonourable use. And the vessels for dishonourable use are the same as the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And yeah. the vessels for honourable use are the same as the vessels for mercy, Christians. So the point here we say, Parker, is this, that God intends that the vessels of wrath sin in order that he might destroy them and make known his, his power and show his wrath on them. And the that's also seen in the previous paragraph which harkens back to Pharaoh where it says um, Paul quotes an Exodus and he says the scripture says to Pharaoh for this very purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth so Paul's saying here 
And of course, it's all inspired by God, so God's saying it too. Paul's saying that the same goes for Pharaoh as goes generally for the reprobate, the people that aren't elect. They've been raised up, as the word in Pharaoh's case, or made in verse 21 out of the same lump, endure with much patience in order that God might to show his wrath and make known his power. Now, again, the wrath demands logically sin. So yeah. it follows that God has, um, we say it follows that God intends that the sin occur in order that he can achieve his goal of um, showing his wrath. And the vessels for dishonorable use dishonorable, you can't use something dishonorably, or at least God can't use something dishonorably if it's sinless. Right? You can only use something dishonorably, God can only use something dishonorably if it deserves to be dishonored, in other words, if it's sinful. So we see when he says about um, the vessel for dishonorable use, that that is a sinful vessel. And it's one that's made by God. So he's made a vessel for honorable use, made another for dishonorable use. So we say, and this is what the back in verse 20 when the objector says to Paul why have you or the objector says to God and Paul reports him saying this why have you made me like this now and who can resist his will so what the objector is saying there is why do you find fault with me why does he still right. find fault well that means find fault with me as a sinner right that's what finding fault is so who can resist his will so he means if God wills that I sin I can't resist it. And then he says, why have you made me like this? Meaning a sinner. That's what's in right. view here. So the text here says that God makes people sinners. Why have you made me like this? Okay. They, it's his will that they sin because it says who can resist his will? And the reason why he wills that they sin is in order that he can show his wrath on them because you can't God can't show wrath unless they've sinned so we say that God intends that they sin in order that he can show his wrath in order that he can make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy now um is that to help why we maintain what we have would you like me to talk about how the substratum people and cam fans might respond and why we think that isn't going to work yeah Real, well, so okay. real briefly, um, yep. I'm, I'm wondering um, uh, if someone might respond and say, well, you know, Paul says, what if? So um, right. we can even we can even, you know, be uh, inerrantists and fallibilists, right. but but still recognize that, you know, what yep. if this passage has, you know, is just Paul giving a hypothetical? Well, what if? Right. And, and perhaps it's not. Um, yeah, what, what do you make of that just initial right. like, retort? The, thanks. That's a, a great question. We talk about this in the book. So the, you're absolutely right. The, the, the text doesn't say this is definitely the truth. Um, yeah. It says, what if? But in, it's, still, um, it's important to recognize that even the questions in the Bible, like this one, are inspired questions. Okay? They're yeah. not just um, you know, random things. It's sometimes occasionally hear people talk as if only the declarative sentences in the Bible are inspired and the questions could be totally random. They can't be right. totally random. They're all inspired by God. So they all make sense in the context, right? They're all questions that are worth asking. Yeah. Now, 
it wouldn't be worth asking if um, if it were totally off the wall stupid, right? I mean, imagine this, mm. Parker, right? In, um, on our opponent's view, um, they might say, um, when Paul says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath to maintenance powers and do with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? They might say, yeah, but, you know, what if it, he can't? So there's an end of it, right? <laughs> that can't possibly be right. It can't possibly be the case that um, when Paul says, what if, if somebody said to him, yeah, but that's just impossible, he said, okay, you're right, you're right, it's impossible, but I'm just talking about an impossibility. That would make no <laughs> right. sense at all in the, yeah. in the text, right? The, the point in this is text is that this is something, a possibility that's compatible with God's nature, right? If it were an yeah. impossible situation that were incompatible with God, it'd be ridiculous to mention it, and the Bible doesn't say anything ridiculous. It doesn't even ask ridiculous questions, right? The questions mm. are all there for an important purpose. Yeah. Now, that's all we need, okay? We, um, uh, because of course our opponents say that God can't intend that sin occur, okay? And we yeah. say that this passage holds out the um, the prospect that for all we know, it's true in real life that yeah. um, God has set things up like this. So maybe if I wanted to be ultra cautious, Parker, what I would say is this passage teaches that for all we know, God intended that these sins occur. Um, yeah. Now, I think I can be a bit stronger than, than that, but our opponents certainly can't accept that because they are saying Aquinas and Tertullian and so on saying no the Bible teaches the opposite it teaches that God never intends that sin occur and in fact God can't intend that sin occur we know that so yeah this passage is certainly a huge problem for them but I actually think that linking back to Pharaoh which is um not a what-if case but this is a, a real life case where Paul says for the scripture says to Pharaoh so he's quoting the absolute 100% authority of God here, the scripture says, and the way he links that with this um, possibility, if you want to use that 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 word, um, yeah. seems to me to indicate that, you know, actually this is reality as well as possible for all we know, um, yeah. because of the way he links it with something that, that is real. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, the uh, certainly it's still a problem for us. Uh, even if I'm wrong about that, even if we're wrong about that, it's the Bible's certainly holding us out as true for all we know. Otherwise, yeah. the opponent could just say, "Well, we know that's wrong, Paul." End of discussion. So it's true right. for all we know, and our opponents deny that, and there's the the problem. Yeah. Wow, that's a that's a really great response. About Cam and the, sorry, gone. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's an amazing response. Let's go. Let's go with. Um, I guess you you know better than me. Um, to pick pick whichever one you think comes more naturally first, substratum or, or cam, and then close I think substratum comes more naturally first, and then okay. uh, cam follows on on the back of that. So, and in the book we combine them into a, a, a combined dash strategy and talk about that. Um, um, so a substratum account. Again, we think they've got no case here. And the reason why they've got no case is because um, it's not enough for God to intend that the uh, vessels of wrath um, perform the substratum, the substrate of the sin, because he desires to show his wrath and to make known his power. And if 
you know, going back to that kind of silly example I gave before, you know, if somebody had just done the, um, well, uh, uh, let's go back to the, the Joseph example on the silly example. So the Joseph example, it makes sense. We actually don't think it's just the right interpretation of the text, but it makes sense. We can see what they're getting at for our opponents to say, God intended that the body of Joseph moved from Canaan to Egypt. He didn't intend that it be sinfully sold into slavery. Right. But here, there's no parallel move that they can make, it seems to us, Parker, because the um, whole point here is that God wants to show his wrath. Okay. And he, he, being perfectly moral, he can't show his wrath unless there's sin. And right. that's the whole point of a vessel for dishonorable use. And that's the whole point of why does he still find fault? Right? Fault is sin. We're talking about sin. So it seems to us that it's very clear here that um, um, when he says, why have you made me like this? With what intention have you made me like this? Meaning a sinner. The What God goes on to say is, in the text, what Paul goes on to say is, the intention that God had is, in making you a sinner, is that you should be a vessel for dishonorable use in order that my wrath, says God, might be shown upon you. In order that, this is the good goal at the end of it, the riches of my glory for the vessels of my mercy might be made known. Okay, So we think the substratum approach doesn't get off the ground here. Now, Cam's yeah. approach, again, is just like in the ex-passage, is harder to refute. We, we certainly grant that. It's a very subtle, difficult uh, view. But again, we think it's not plausible um, about the text. And we might add here, Parker, that something we say in the book that it kind of seems a bit odd for somebody to say, you know, nobody understood the Bible properly until Francis Cam came along in the 1990s and suddenly explained it all to us. Okay, yeah. But before then, for 1,900 years or so, everybody had been misreading the Bible. You know, they'd yeah. been um, uh, assuming that this was a, a case of um, means end reasoning and that you had to intend the means but now it's suddenly revealed by Francis Cam um, that you know this is a, a different kettle of fish it's a, a matter of because of the means not intending the means it right. just seems kind of implausible that this view would never have occurred in the entire history of the church um, Francis yeah. Cam isn't in the church but, but it would never have occurred before now and actually as far as we know Matt and I are the first people ever to apply this view to this text okay or to yeah. any of these texts and we're applying it on behalf of our opponents right to try and steel man their position but okay here goes um so what francis cam might say here is is this she might say god intends um the just punishment the showing of his wrath um on the vessels of wrath the vessels for dishonorable use but he doesn't intend the means that is they're actually sinning. Um, we say, uh, again, going back to those three um, tests um, yeah. that um, uh, Frances Cam herself uh, quotes um, uh, that she takes from Michael Bratman. So first test, if you intend to bring about something, you seek means to accomplish the end of bringing it about. Well, we say that's fulfilled in the text here because God actually makes them like this. That's what the object says. Why have you mm. made me like this? Right. So you couldn't really find a clearer example of God's choosing the means to make somebody a sinner. 
he's made them like this, right? Yeah. When he says like this, he means made me a sinner. That's what the objector's saying. That's the first test. Second test, if we intend to bring something about, we pursue it. That is, if one way fails to produce it, we adopt another way. Well, again, it's hard to kind of imagine because God's ways never fail. But you can, um, uh, you know, if um, Pharaoh, to go back to the example in, the, in Romans 9.17, when Paul himself is giving this example, um, you know, that if Pharaoh or any other vessel for dishonorable use had kind of, um, uh, you know, um, wasn't sinning for some, um, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine because God's made them that way and God's plans always work. But just imagine um, that, you, you know, you had some kind of open theist uh, type view of God, as some people do, where his plans might fail. So yeah. in that case, on this line, would God then, if he desires to his wrath, would God take another um, approach to ensure that outcome. We say yes, just as he does in the Exodus account with Pharaoh, that he, you know, spends multiple times um, um, going to Pharaoh and multiple times hardening his heart. It's not just once in the Bible that it says that he hardens Pharaoh's heart, but more than once. And the third test is um, the uh, um, if we intend something, our intention should be consistent as far as rational, then we filter out intentions that conflict with intending it. So does God have any conflicting intentions here? Does God intend that the vessels for dishonorable use should not be um, shown wrath? Does he intend that they should not sin? No, there's absolutely nothing along those lines here in, in the text. And again, we've got to ask, Francis Cam says very clearly that although you don't need to intend all your means to your goal, you've got to intend some means, otherwise you're just right. wishing or hoping for it. Yeah. So here the goal is showing wrath. And we said that because God's perfectly moral, that has to be on sinners. So what could what on this view, the Cam view, would God intend to as his means to bring about the showing of wrath other than sin? Well, we say there's nothing else in the text here at all no. that is held out as a means whereby God could constitute somebody wrathworthy other than sin. Okay, and you know, not only does the text not show any other way, but we actually say there is no other way. The rest of the Bible shows we say that God has wrath only on sinners. If you're innocent or you're forgiven, God doesn't show his wrath on you that's really important for christians okay that's why we've got yeah. such confidence that on the great day of judgment we're not going to be subject to god's wrath because we've been forgiven and we have the righteousness of christ so sin and only sin fits the bill here it's the only possible means so we say that um on francis cam's view if you were to adopt it with this passage you'd be left with god just hoping Right, there'd be no means at all to connect God's making somebody for dishonorable use and they're actually um, being suitable for the show of wrath and the making known of his power. And we say that the only link between those two is the sin that follows on from their being made for dishonorable use. And we say that because that's the only possible link, God must intend 
that that um, link obtain, in other words, he intends that the vessels for dishonorable use actually do sin. Hmm. Whew, man, that was that's that's quite a case. Um, I, I, We've only so done good. two passages, and um, right. we have. Uh, um, I actually haven't counted them up, but we're fourteen or something like that in the book. Yeah. Um, passages. Yeah. Now, I've picked out what I think actually the two strongest uh, here. I have to be honest, and and we discussed some cases which we think aren't quite as good, and we say that, and um, we rank them to strong, moderate, or weak. Um, yeah. But there's, there's um, we've got several uh, strong passages. Um, and I can uh, let your um, uh, readers uh, uh, know that we think they're Exodus 421, which we discussed today, Deuteronomy 2, 26 to 30, Joshua 11, 18 to 20, 1 Samuel 2, 20 to 25, 2 Samuel 24, 9 to 14, Ezekiel 20, 23, 26, Romans 9, 22 to 23, which we just discussed, and then Romans 11, 30 to 32. So there's quite a lot of other passages there we think are strong, and then we also talk about moderate and weak ones. It also ought to be said that we discuss um, other verses in the Bible um, yeah. that could be put forward as objections to our um, uh, our line, and we try and respond to, uh, uh, to them as well. And I can talk about yeah. that now if you want, Park, or, or if we're out of time, um, I can leave people to read them on the book, which is, after all, open access, so they won't need to pay. Yeah, ex that's, that's exactly what I was about to say. Yeah, so, uh, folks, grab the book. It's, it's open access. You can download it for free. Uh, the link will be in the description. It is, uh, uh, Daniel's holding it up there, but it's Does God Intend That Sin Occur by Matthew J. Hart and Daniel J. Hill, the Palgrave uh, Pivot book. So go, you know, feel free. Please do go download that book. Um, <clears throat> I will also have a link to the uh, Tyndale Fellowship uh, Study Group for Philosophy of Religion there. And uh, I'll have a link to uh, Daniel's uh, own website where you can find more of his works as well. Um, this has been so awesome, man. Thank you for, for all your time. We've, we've gone over two hours now. This has been fantastic. Um, there's, there's so, there's so much more to do now, like with this, with this tool and with this in, in hand, um, and Lord willing, it'll help people, uh, pick up his word, God's word and, uh, and read, you know? So that's like the end, the end goal, uh, always is to, to better understand God, to better understand our relation to him. And uh, yeah, what he intends with his story of reality. So, uh, Daniel, thanks, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. This has been really, really fun. Well, thank you for having me. I'm sorry that I've taken such a long time, but uh, no, in my awesome. defense, you've asked some brilliant questions, <laughs> and I've uh, been um, uh, trying to make as, myself as uh, as clear as possible because we definitely don't want to be misunderstood about this. You know, we right. don't want people right. saying, "Oh, they're saying God sins," because we absolutely deny that. We say right. God doesn't sin, can't sin, never sins, uh, and so on. But also, secondly, you know, we've got the utmost res respect for the people with whom we disagree, right? Um, right. We would never go against Aquinas and Turretin and people like that without really uh, seriously thinking that the Bible pretty much forces us to do that. And that's why I've taken such length to try and show that we're not, you know, kind of just um, trying to give some kind of half-baked um, um, response here that um, uh, that is just kind of casual reply to them, but but we've thought and, and prayed about this a lot, and we are convinced that this is um, really the only um, vaguely um, appropriate and natural way to read and understand the scriptures. But thank you very much to you for having me on. Thank you to everybody for listening, and I'm happy to, if people want to email me, um, then I'm very happy for um, uh, for them to do so, and I can. Um, you can, I'm happy for you to put my email address in the uh, 
um, show notes or whatever as well if people um, want to, uh, as I put it in the chat for you, but if people want to contact me about that, I'll be uh, happy to try and answer any further questions if I if I if I can. Um, and uh, you know, if people can, as Martin Luther, you know, said, if people can disprove me from the scriptures, then I'll certainly be happy to recant all this. But it yeah. seems to me that there's just a clear teaching of the, of the Bible. Yeah. Amen. Amen, man. Thanks so much. My my puppy Theophilus is going wild right now. Uh, folks, right. That, that's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God. Amen to that.